the dust blows forward and the dust blows back. Down in Dachau Blues. All the pots you build. Well, the goldfish, the harmonious dance. Ratchet buds burst. The way you were dancing, I knew you'd never come back. Hello, and welcome to Track by Track presents Trout Mask Replica. Uh, My name is Joel Bacher, guest hosting for Darren Husted. And as we are going track by track through uh, Don Van Vliet and his magic band's monolithic 1969 double album, Trout Mask Replica. Uh, Today we are going to be discussing The Dust Blows Forward and The Dust Blows Back, which is track two on side one. This was presumably recorded on a tape recorder somewhere in the house in Woodland Hills where they worked on the majority of the rehearsals for Trout Mask Replica. Um, I say presumably because it's clearly recorded on a personal tape recorder or a, a mobile tape recorder, but it's not to the best of my knowledge, no one's actually got a date on when he recorded this. Um, it, the personnel on this track is super easy because it is a acapella track. This is Don Van Vliet on his own uh, singing to us for one minute and 53 seconds. Um, this, uh, the acapella, there's three acapella tracks on the album. Um, and personal, oh, I, sh- I should probably introduce my guest. My, des- my guest today is David Lipson, who a good friend of mine, um, professor at San Diego State University fellow aficionado of uh, unusual and outsider music and art. David, how are you doing today? Great. Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me here. So I was thinking about this earlier. If I had to introduce this album to some, if, if my, if the task allotted to me was introduce Trout Mask Replica to someone who doesn't like um, discordant or, or um, outsider or avant-garde music, and introduce it to them in a way that they don't immediately go, no, I don't like this and run away from it. I'd probably start with the acapella tracks. They are more tuneful, I guess, to, for lack of a better word, than the full band material. There's obviously less room for for um, dissonant harmonies, considering that there's no harmony, it's just melody. And um, one of the, I think it was John French in the Eric Gudis article made the observation that when Van Vliet is, uh, was writing music by singing it or by whistling it for the band. He generally would stay within the same key, uh, whereas when he was working on the piano, he had the entire 88 keys and could go, uh, could go out in, um, in all sorts of different directions. Yeah, he had um, a machine to help make him uh, produce dissonant music. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. And whereas when, with his voice, he, you know, he was... Um, he would mostly stick within the same, the same realm. This, this track also is, uh, seemingly improvised. Um, he's simply clicking record as he thinks of the next line. Um, there's a, a quote, uh, in Mike Barnes's, uh, biography of Beefheart where, uh, Van Vliet is telling a, a reporter, in a in a wonderful little neologism. He says that was an impromptu impromptitudinal poem <laughs> which i like uh, uh, barnes labels that as like an error on either van vliet or on the, the reporter's part personally i think it's just another wonderful little example of the it's an innovation <laughs> an innovation and yeah he there's there's a few different neologisms on this album just words that have never existed before um and th- i think that's another example of him just having some fun with language and probably messing with a reporter which is something he 
really liked doing. Um, so this is the second song on this album. So we've gone straight from Frownland, which is the opening Maelstrom, um, into this. Uh, it, it immediately sounds different. The recording is different. There's no band. It's an uh, acapella track. The sound of his voice is different um, from the full frontal assault of Frownland. You've got this kind of almost amiable, creaky, um, sing-songy voice that he's doing on this that in the beginning of you now david you've got a much better ear for pitch than i do um on the first couple of lines of this song the there's old gray with the dove wing hat and um i'm looking at the actual there's old gray with her dove winged hat there's old green with her sewing machine it, it seems a little bit um it, it seems like the kind of tune you'd sing to yourself if you're just kind of humming tunelessly like Absolutely, I, yeah. Is he in a key at all? Well, yeah, those, actually, so uh, kind of... I, I I overanalyzed uh, the melody on this. Um, I appreciate that. You know, the first thing you'll notice is the, uh, so yeah, like you said, there's a completely free melody and rhythm throughout this. It just goes along with the subject matter. But but uh, indeed, he is singing in a key. And it's hard because he's using his, his sort of old geezer hobo voice. Right, that's a great um, way which, of describing it. Uh, and, and compared to his... Um, other tracks. I mean, he has a huge range in terms of, of uh, moods and sounds that he can produce with his voice. Um, he's just using a, a head voice with his lips barely moving. It occurred to me you could sing this song kind of with a ventriloquist dummy. You could, like, you could like keep your lips completely stationary and sing this song. I would pay good uh, money to see a ventriloquist do this song. By the way, that that isn't. I'm I'm no fan of ventriloquists, but that is that's an act I'd pay for. All right. Well, that's next up on our list. Um, but so I did look at the melody and notice that he's jumping a lot between two octaves. There's a lot of these sort of disjunct intervals of sixth and seventh, big leaps, relatively speaking, if we're going to do counterpoint <laughs> on this. Um, and he's like, so there's old gray with the gold wearing hat. So he keeps going back and forth. And I looked at it. It's like, oh yeah, he is actually singing in a key. It's just very free. And, uh, but a lot of those big leaps that um, you might think are hard to do, but of course, if you're barely moving your lips and <laughs> I suppose it comes off as very natural. The, the remarkable thing, one of the remarkable things about this track is how much it does have a feel of just, I mean, yeah, it's it's improvisational and it does have the feel of like someone going around and just kind of making up a song about what's what's going on in their day or what, for those of us who are pet owners, if you ever sing a song to your cat or, or dog, you know, and you just, you just Guilty. make up a little song about like what's going on in their cat day or whatever. It, it feels like this kind of made a little, you know, goofy made up excursion. And yet as he goes along, it builds up into a narrative and also, a, you know, it, it's a song, it's a completed work by the time he's done, but it's, it has that remarkable feeling of of seeing something being being made, being just coming up out of out of nothing. And that's why I love the fact that there's still the sort of punch ins and punch outs of the uh, of the tape recorder, because um, that's what I assumed it was. And I'm, thanks for clarifying yeah, I, that. I believe you're right. Um, and the fact that they just left it there, uh, just played it as is with full spontane full spontaneity and him occasionally uh, tripping over his words and uh, fluffing a line. Yeah. And um, to me, it also sort of is reminiscent of an old scratchy LP, which of course, back in 1960s, they were making fresh old scratchy LPs. So, uh, <laughs> but, but I think that having the clicking sound actually for me in this modern time helps give it a sense of authenticity. Yeah, I was thinking about that right before we started recording that, I mean, he, he could have, 
there there's two tracks on this album um that are this kind of of acapella track where it was clearly recorded on a home um or a mobile tape recorder there's this one an orange claw hammer either one of those he could have recorded in a full studio if he had so chosen but clearly wanted this version of this recording to be what was on the album uh, some of that may have been because he was legendarily uh, disinterested in redoing things or in rehearsing he, like he never rehearsed with he didn't he didn't like to work on stuff he would rather move on to the next thing and just keep on on this kind of free associative creation so it may have been a matter of him just going well there, here it is and it's done and and it's going on the album this way but yeah for someone who grew up loving old blues and r&b as he did the the clicks of the recorder do have the sound like the pops and crackles of an old 78 and the um the you know lo-fi recording quality puts one in the mind of like an old charlie Patton record or something like that where it's you're getting the hiss of the tape and the the um the tactile nature of the the medium or the sound is just part of the experience i don't know if tactile is the right word there but you know what i'm going for well yeah it's there's a vibration you can feel it and it's almost like performing ethnomusicological research on yourself exactly (laughs) it's like i'm going out into the wild to record this authentic recording of a bumpkin who happens to be me well i know that zappa's Um, original idea for the album was he wanted to treat it like a field recording he was just going to take his mobile recording unit out to their house in Woodland Hills and just record the the band um, playing the song these songs in um, in their their Woodland Hills house, which their natural, natural habitat, habitat exactly. Yeah. Which as as even as I'm saying this, I'm thinking how much their neighbors must have hated them. <laughs> I know there was there are stories that like uh, John French had to put cardboard on his drums to dampen the sound a little bit because the neighbors were constantly complaining, but. I mean, to be fair, and I love this album, I would get tired of hearing these guys rehearse it if they lived right next door to me. Oh, they probably thought there was a dangerous cult living there, and they were right. And they were, yeah, there kind of was. There, <laughs> that's that's a pretty accurate assessment. Um, oh, and I forgot to mention the length. I'm supposed to mention the length of the track. I forgot. It's one minute and 53 seconds. Yeah, we'll see how the, many magnitudes of 10 longer we can talk about that. <laughs> we are, we're already at, I think, 10 times the the length of that thus far so you you mentioned the 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 great description of you know sounding like an old bumpkin barnes has this has a line in his book about it, it sounds as if it comes from some forgotten oral tradition with van vliet singing in creaky tones like a septuagenarian farmhand sitting on his porch reminiscing about a fishing trip <laughs> it's it's a beautiful description and I, it I, is I, and it's very accurate it's true that when you talk about a sort of a lost tradition because as natural and sort of, you know, old Americana as it sounds, it's hard to find something that directly sounds like this. You know, uh, we could go through the old like Appalachian stuff from Woody Guthrie and um, and you you mentioned earlier Harry Parch, uh, but, and there's certainly, it's reminiscent of a lot of old folk music, but it's hard to find anything really like this. <laughs> Um, it's very true and and it speaks to his ability to take these traditional forms and kind of um infuse them or move through them with his personality and what he wanted wants to say and that's really really striking on the acapella tracks cuz you've got this one which yeah you know, the appalachian is an excellent excellent pull i was actually i was going down a rabbit hole listening to old appalachian folk music last night in preparation for this um, 
and then well uh the one of the other acapella tracks is is seems to be derived from like a field holler kind of uh like really early blues uh, pre-blues sound and orange claw hammer is is kind of a variation on like a sea shanty um and yeah driving from these pre-rock and roll pre um most of what we would consider contemporary popular music forms but making them like these very these very personal modes of expression it didn't occur to me until we i started really looking at the lyrics and talking about this that the first two songs on this album are kind of about escape that right after frownland he goes into dust blows forward and dust blows back which are both and both of the songs are about in their own way about like modern world is rubbish let's go off and find something that's different and in frownland it's this kind of uh you know i've made this place that's better and come with me and we'll explore this place and dust blows forward and dust blows back is a much more traditional like going out in the woods and going camping and going fishing like a very uh uh again like old american um pre agrarian society kind of way of stepping away from um the modern world and all of its its troubles yeah just going out and, and and uh, loving being in loving being in nature, and uh, what is different when you compare this with um, old Appalachian tales, which a lot of are songs that derived a lot from European tradition and a lot of American folk music, is there's not a lot of this naked hippie theme. Like, well, you know, one of my favorite lines is "I took off my pants and felt free." <laughs> it's just like the, the breeze blowing up. Bit. Me. <laughs> the breeze blowing up me, which is so, so great, and yeah. up the canyon as far as I can see. Like. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I get it, naked hippies a great way of putting it, and you know the whole back to nature thing was definitely uh, in the in the air in the late sixties. Um, I do think he seems to be. I get the impression that Van Vliet really did love nature and the natural world and and animals and uh, oh, and last time in the last episode I mentioned um, a list an incom- incomplete list of all the animals that are mentioned on this album. Um, and I had a, tri- I think I attributed it to Barnes, but it's actually from Eric Gudis's, um, all about jazz article. And he says, here's a partial list of animals and trout mask replica songs, trout, worms, blue jay, mice, gophers, doves, big black, shiny bug, uh, beetle, thick black felt birds, white elephant, bees, goldfish, crow, chicken, eagle, jackrabbit, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on love of, uh, nature nature imagery and animal imagery is like right there from the second track i I like the fact that uh there's a respect for small ordinary creatures too like one of my favorite lines other than taking off my pants and feeling free is i can hear the mice toes scampering gophers rumbling (laughs) so you know the rumbling gophers like yeah who hasn't heard the rum the uh, gophers rumbling across the plains (laughs) <laughs> the, 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 I'm sorry, that just presents image of like mighty herds of gophers <laughs> but yeah no and, and yeah the um the blackbirds feeding on rice his red wings look like diamonds and lice which is you know lice is not a super uh is is not a cuddly animal that one would want to associate with yeah there's all creatures great and small get some respect exactly here. yeah and and going back to the previous line about taking off his pants i want to say that that's where the uh, free rhythm really is extremely effective. That slight hesitation when it says like breeze blowing up me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and then the, the, the next line is ambiguous about up the canyons. So <laughs> yeah, uh, but that's, a perfect I, I, that's a great observation that, that, yeah, it's, it, it does feel like he's uh, that, that slight hesitation. There is a great, a, a great pause. Um, 
But yeah, you mentioned, uh, and we we had I mentioned in the previous episode um, briefly Harry Parch, and it's weird to me that as much iconography as they seem to share, Van Vliet and Parch, um, and that they are both like in the great tradition of Southern California weirdos. Um, I'm not sure where Parch originated from originally, but he made the later part of his career around Los Angeles and San Diego and and uh, died in Barstow, I think. Um, that there doesn't seem to be a lot of writing, uh, anything that I've been able to find, but I will concede that I have not done a super deep dive um, discussing the similarities between these two or the degree of influence that Parch may have had on Van Vliet, um, which would be difficult to say because Van Vliet never really admitted that anybody influenced him at all. Um, and But there's, I, to me, in particularly, it's really noticeable in these acapella tracks, and in this one in particular, the that they seem to be working along or worked along similar lines, um, whether or not there was any kind of direct influence. Uh, like on... Um, Parches, Barstow, or uh, U.S. Highball, where he's using these, um, where he's using hobo hobo speak. Like, I think on Barstow, isn't it actually from like, highway inscriptions? Um, yeah, highway inscriptions. Yeah, right on the railings outside Barstow. And so uh, I have, I, I've got this Harry Parch album, and the liner notes here, I think, are uh, there's a paragraph I'd like to read uh, because you can sort of see people were falling all over themselves trying to figure out what American music was, which is mm -hmm. harder for classical music. I, I, obviously the blues and folk are very American, but uh, so here's, here's a little quote from this album. 40 years ago, Parch realized that American music wasn't really American, but only a facsimile of European convention and fashion, dot, 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 dot. Uh, anyway, he found it was necessary to completely reinvestigate the nature of sound as music. And for his point of departure, he chose to use the inherent musicality of the American language. So that's where you have um, him intoning slash singing these, these bits of uh, monologue <laughs> in, uh, in those hobo pieces that you mentioned. Number two. Gentlemen, go to 530 East Lemon Avenue. Gentlemen. Monrovia, California. Gentlemen, for an easy hand up. Gentlemen, go to 530 East Lemon Avenue in Monrovia for an easy handout. Gentlemen, yo ho ho, yo ho ho, yo ho ho, yo ho ho, yo Go to 530 East Lemon Avenue in Monrovia for an easy handout. Gentlemen, gone fishing for a week. Well, I put down my bush. And I took off my pants and felt free. The breeze blowing up me and up the canyon, far as I could see. It's night now and the moon looks like a dandelion. It's black now and the blackbird's feeding on rice and his red wings look like diamonds and lice. The use of speech rhythms, which is, you mentioned the freeness in Dust Blows Forward. He's clearly basing it on, um, yeah, a very American rambly speech pattern that doesn't you know cling to any kind of traditional verse structure or uh compositional structure yeah and uh unlike harry parch um you know all those um hobo songs i mean the hobos were working they were traveling workers and um what don van vliet is uh, singing about here is 
much more about being a bum or at least a hobo yeah. on vacation. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so that's, again, it's hard. Like it sounds like we've both been doing uh, deep dives in the, through folk music and I looked through, um, I figured there should be a cute Woody Guthrie song about fishing. And even that has a political uh, message and it's stuck in the very end is uh, talking fish blues. <laughs> uh, oh, I'm going to have to look that up. Um, yeah, I, I actually, this, um, this track made me think of a radio show that I used to listen to uh, back when I lived in Oregon. It was on the local, um, the Portland ultra leftist station, KBOO. And I think it was a nationwide syndicated show called Loafers Glory, I think it was. Uh, and it was hosted by this dude named Utah Phillips. Oh, which is yeah. Hallelujah, uh, I'm a bum. You, yeah, okay, you know him. Um, the, yeah, who, uh, and again, speaking of the political aspects of it, this guy was like an old wobbly. He was a, uh, one of the, you know, wrote songs for United Workers and had been an actual hobo riding the rails, as, as had Harry Parch. Um, so yeah, there's there's a, a musical tradition. The ho- hobos uh, have a presence in the American musical tradition, which is not a sentence I ever thought I'd say, but it's 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 undeniable. It's undeniable the degree of you know the cross pollination of songs traveling back and forth across the country. Well, yeah, and I, I think we'll get back to this um, on a later track when we talk about uh, the Orange Claw Hammer, but um, realize that hobo has been around a lot longer than just. The Great Depression, the Dust Bowl. Right. Um, so there's there's actually quite, and it goes back into the 1800s apparently. So, um, so yeah, you can see how true American music <laughs> that 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 is a uh, a strong influence. And it's not entirely surprising. I mean, Van Vliet was from a later generation than than Parge, um, and from what I read, um, would go and hang out with some of the old hobos that would still travel around. Uh, near Lancaster, California, where he was he was growing up, so knew some of these guys. Uh, although it, you have to take everything Van Vliet said about himself and his life with a grain of salt, because he loved to self mythologize and kind of build up tall tales, which is again, tall tales is another very old American kind of method of um, self identifying of creating an image of yourself. So whether he actually how much he actually hung out with hobos or not is a is a fair question, but he, he had some presumably had some direct contact with these guys. And also I think, um, you know, in connection with that whole back to nature thing, there was a certain romanticization of, um, of the hobo lifestyle and of the hobo, you know, having not experienced it directly, it's not terribly surprising that Van Vliet in looking for a way of stepping away from contemporary society would mythologize this idea of the old America of riding the rails and, um, yeah. Or, you know, having these uh, having these idyllic fishing holidays. That's a really um, it's a good model for early counterculture. Right. It's completely off the grid. Right. Sure. Just riding for free. And, and they worked out their own society and language um, where to get friendly uh, accommodations and where to avoid. And, uh, you know, there's a whole counterculture that sort of developed around that lifestyle. And so I could see that being a. Yeah, early model for, you know, pre-beatnik, pre-hippie, you, you had the hobos. Yeah, isn't there a line in Barso, something about, like, kind-hearted woman at this location, or some, some, some like, the hobo mark of, like, go here for, a you know, a bath and a Search meal. Of a, yeah, the easy hand out, gentlemen. <laughs> ha, 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 ho, ho, ho. It's one of my favorite parts. Another another track that came to mind as I was, as I was listening to this, 
is an, an a song called Big Rock Candy Mountain, which is I I'm gonna um, just lay it on the table. I first heard it in Old Brother Where Art Thou, so I'm not gonna pretend that I had some kind of deep knowledge of old timey music prior to hearing it there. But that's very much a like it, it's all it's an old hobo song, and it's a hobo like painting this idyllic picture of you got to go up to the Big Rock Candy Mountain because it's the best place for bombs. And he just lays out all this different stuff about why it's the best place to be a hobo. Like the, you know, all the cops have wooden legs and the, the <laughs> police, the police dogs have rubber teeth and there's, uh, um, you know, lakes of whiskey and, you know, it's, 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 um, wow, a hobo's, a hobo's paradise. Those are verses I was not exposed to as a child. So that was one of the silly folk songs I heard as a kid. And I, do you remember all of the political statements about uh, police and and booze? That's that's pretty great. I have to go re listen to that as an adult. <laughs> How do you bring it up? Yeah, a lot of these older folk songs they would that get out, got a little sanitized when they were prepared for for kids. I think Neil Young did a project a couple of years ago where he did like exclusively public domain songs. He and he and Crazy Horse and would point out that like there's always second or third verses to these songs that no one ever sings because they're you know they've got like some kind of subversive message or something like that it's particularly timely now but uh all the old woody guthrie songs like the lonesome hobo song i think uh whatever it's called, like um talks about how the the police cause trouble for you they cause trouble everywhere when you die and go to heaven you'll find no policeman there something like that <laughs> Oh, that doesn't have any contemporary relevance at all. <laughs> so the song starts, he, he begins by, by painting this little, um, I guess like, like small town. There's old gray with her dove wing hat. There's old green with her sewing machine. Where's the bobbin at? Toting old grain in a printed sack. Dust blows forward and the dust blows back, which is, so these are a first of two of many characters that pop up in songs throughout this album almost immediately to be discarded like you get these name checks of people throughout the album we've got these two uh we've got mrs wooten and little nitty in uh <laughs> moonlight favorite. on vermont um we've got uh the navy blue vicar paul peter and mrs ray flicker i think it is from sugar and spikes like all the all these little names that that pop up and populate these songs briefly and then, and this is not counting the songs that are just full on character sketches like Elaguru or Pina or um, Pachuco Cadaver. So he's got this very like fully realized world that he um, will dip into and give you this little flash of color and then just kind of move along to right. the next thing. Yeah, it's really good world building. It does add a lot of realism. And so maybe you can tell me. Um, if you understand at all the reference to the Bobby girls. I was just about to bring that up because I was struggling with that yesterday. Cause that. <laughs> okay. That, I'm really curious what you came up with. Nothing really. Um, it's, it rings a bell and I kept thinking like he's referencing something. The Bobby girls comes from something. And maybe someone listening to this podcast uh, in the future when it's actually released. Um, if you know what this is in reference to, just get at me on, on Twitter or Instagram at Joel A. Bakker, B-A-K-K-E-R, and tell me what the Bobby Girls are. Because my first thought was like, I was thinking of something, and I think it's like the Bobsy Twins or something like that, which right. is not it, but that was the immediate association I had. 
Um, and then I was like, well, were they like, were the Bobby girls like an Nancy Drew kind of thing where it was like a series of books or, or things about these two and then I, or more, and I couldn't find anything. Um, I believe there's a contemporary fiction series called the Bobby girls, but, um, obviously that came much later. So yeah, I don't know precisely what he's right. It may be a very personal, uh, insular reference it probably certainly isn't so this is the closest thing i could come up with which is not very plausible but um apparently uh in 1906 an author named edith nesbitt wrote the railway children and bobby was the oldest girl of the railway children but they weren't all bobby girls it was just one girl named bobby and her brothers and sisters and it sounds like a pretty interesting book about the plight of poor people but it's a children's book and so it sounds like it probably has some socialist leanings i don't know (laughs) I would really like to read that. And I mean, and that's, it's not entirely outside of the realm of possibility that that's what he would be referencing. Um, there's certainly all kinds of very odd little personal touches that show up throughout the album, like uh, things that almost seem like in jokes or, you know, something that only very few people are going to understand, but it was directed at those people. But um, that's interesting. Would, and speak- certainly any kind of railway related uh, materials seem like they would be within his wheelhouse. And speaking of in-jokes, okay, so uh, here's another Uncle Meat um, reference. So Uncle Meat, Frank uh, Zappa and the Mothers of Invention album released around the same time. Um, in this is a, I can't find the year right now, but at any rate, uh, lots of um, Captain Beefheart uh, references in this album. Frank Zappa, of course, produced Trout Mask Replica. Uh, mm-hmm. This is a, a movie idea they never had money to finish, but... The evil scientist's um, henchman or henchwoman <laughs> is named Bimbo. Oh, okay. And so uh, hanging with a girl named Bimbo. Bimbo Limbo uh, Spam, yeah. Yeah, Limbo Spam. So it just shows the, the great influence of this music on his contemporaries. <laughs> I, I was actually the... Um, Barnes makes the suggestion that the me and my girl named Bimbo Limbo Spam, that name is entirely so that the line will scan, that it will <laughs> rhyme with hot coffee from a crimped up can. Um, I kind of wondered if and and this is really, really reaching. I'm I'm well aware of that. If Bimbo might be some kind of reference to the Mexican baked goods company, Bimbo Bakeries, because they were around back at the time and it like. I could imagine a guy with, you know, white bread from Bimbo Bakeries and some spam drinking coffee like that would be kind of a camping meal. Like you get your bread and your spam and where the limbo comes from. That's fair. That's a different question. To support your theory, um, back to Uncle Meat, Uncle Meat and his Mexican slave Bimbo. OK. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah. So uh, Bimbo bread, I always thought was funny, but it probably came before the slang term. Bimbo. I don't know. We'll have to look into the etymology of Bimbo and see. What I read was that there's no, it started in Mexico and there's no equivalent word in, in Mexico for like the, you know, meaning bimbo, meaning, you know, floozy or whatever it's taken to mean here in, in the States. Um, I don't know where the word came from originally, but in, for the baked goods company. And also um, another, if forming this conspiracy theory that I'm developing about bimbo limbo spam, um, Van Vliet did drive a bread truck. Um, although it was a Helms bread truck. I wanted to just mention a couple because on the, the acapella tracks, the obviously the, the flexibility and the, the sound of his voice is, is really prominent. Um, but you can really hear and focus on the lyrics in a way that 
they're less um they're less out there on the full band track so i just wanted to nail a couple of the images in this i'm not going to read the whole thing but um a couple of the images that i really like in this track smokestack blows up in sun's eye which is kind of seems to be the inciting incident for our protagonist to want to get out back to nature like seeing this a smokestack blotting out the sun and just being like i gotta get the hell out of here which i think all of us can kind of um relate to uh Lipstick Kleenex hung on a pointed forked twig, which I don't know if that's just a bit of random detritus that he's spotted and is is noting on his journey. Or my first, when I hear a Kleenex on a pointed twig, my first image was of like an old hobo bindle, like that he had something, you know, wrapped up around a stick. But oh, that, would that, make, doesn't, that would make a lot more sense. But the, the lipstick part, I don't know, maybe just because it's red. Um it's just it's a striking image it, regardless of what he's actually specifically referring to it's a striking image uh blue jay squeaks his beak open an inch above a creek which is a great great bit of nat- natural world building of course we've already talked about i put down my bush and i took off my pants and felt free the breeze <laughs> blowing up me and up the canyon as far as i could see again and you know this kind of um for starters that's funny and second of all it, it he's really talking about becoming one with nature of like he's not really differentiating himself from the canyon just you know yeah the breeze is blowing through both of us and i'm out here with you know nothing between me and and the breeze <laughs> which is more natural than i'm prepared to go but hey more power to him if if that's uh that's how he chooses to spend his time uh night now and the moon looks like a dandelion oh one of my favorite lines great. yeah that's so good and uh, I already had the blackbirds feeding on rice. Red wings look like diamonds and lice. I can hear the mice toes scampering. Gophers rumbling in pile crater rock hole. One red bean stuck in the bottom of a tin bowl. Right, which gets the back to the just, hobo imagery again. Yep. And the fact that he's just coming up with this off the dome is is really remarkable to me. Like, I don't know how long this took him in, you know, the the stopping and starting the recording. But that it is not does not appear to be pre-planned in any way that it's just him simply spinning this tail um with these images off the cuff is is really remarkable and we'll never know how much he rewinds but he must not do it a lot because he'll he's happy to stumble over a line and leave it there yeah i think it's the uh lipstick kleenex line he he fluffs a little bit and then just kind of goes back and starts again um and there's one of those on one or more on orange claw hammer too where he's he fluffs a line and then and then goes back which is it? Which gives it even more of that, like field recording, right? Quality, Wax like cylinders. Uh, yep. Yeah. You, if you screwed me. up, you just kept going. You couldn't go <laughs> yeah. back and fix it. And so then, yeah, and we're back to bimbo limbo spam. And putting this, this kind of, um, you know, s- sweet, relatively sweet song in between Frownland, which is you know the call to action of, uh, come take my hand and we're getting out of here, and then immediately before Dachau Blues, which is <laughs> just the the most visual, like uh, in terms of the imagery used, is just the darkest, bleakest song on the album. Is it, it, the sequencing again um, is really emphasizes the variety of music and imagery and vocal performances that you get on this record. I'm sorry, did you have anything else you want to say about Dust Blows Forward and the Dust Blows Back? No, I think we've covered uh, exhaustively, and I'm happy to uh, move on. All right, well, do you have anything that you would like to plug? We uh, On the previous episode, we mentioned your um, your music career, 
as Evil Dr. Lipschitz on, is it Lipschitz or Livschitz? Uh, yeah, Lipschitz, uh, I, I think I spelled it, not, yes, uh, L-I-P-S-C-H-I-T-Z. I think that's how I spelled it. It's been a while. Okay. Evil Dr. Lipschitz. Evil Dr. Lipschitz. I will have, uh, I will request that Darren include a link to that uh, on the, uh, along with the metadata for this recording. If you want to follow me on Twitter, um, I don't tweet very much because Twitter is a god-awful hellscape. Um, but you can if you want to. It's at Joel A. Bakker, B-A-K-K-E-R. Also on Instagram with the same name if you want to see pictures of my cat. Uh, and we will be back with, uh, well, I will be back. David might be back. Depends on his availability with Daco Blues. Thank you for listening. Red beans stuck in the bottom of a tin bowl. Hot coffee from a crimped up can. Me and my girl named Bimbo, Limbo, Spam.